Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to Film Chat, a podcast all about a black American executive turned whistleblower falsely accused of fraud by his corrupt boss. In need of money, he makes a deal with his ex-girlfriend, who is now a lesbian, to make her and her girlfriend pregnant. At his ex's encouragement, he turns this into a side business and hot gay women queue up to have great sex with him for money so they can have babies. One of these women turns out to be the daughter of a local crime lord. Ultimately, everything goes to court. I know this all sounds ridiculous. And <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> indeed it was, uh, when it was the plot of the 2004 Spike Lee film, She Hates Me. But in podcast form, it will still be awful, probably. So instead, let's just sit around here talking about and reviewing films. I'm your sexy, gay, female co-host, Sam Foster. Yeah, you And are. here to impregnate me for $10,000 is my principled, virile ex-fiancé, Danny Moran. Yeah, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Hello. Welcome back. It is Opposite Review Title Week on Film Chat. This will make sense at the end of the podcast. First off, Sam reviews the latest David O. Russell-Jennifer Lawrence collaboration, Joy. Was it a joy to behold? Was it a joy to watch? Or was it a joy when it was over, Sam? Don't tell me now. I want to I find out. Then we take on Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Was it grateful great or was it not grateful great? It's fucking great. Then we check out the wins and the losses at the Globes, the noms and the snobs at the BAFTAs, and the huzzas and the nays at the Oscars. All of which gives me just enough time to reenact Jules Holland's 2015 Hootenanny with me playing Jules, all the bands, and all the random celebs he gets to talk to for like 20 seconds. I was working in the first! Who and Annie? Who and Annie? Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Boo films, films that star. Hey, Ugh, welcome back. back, guys. It's good to be back. Um, how was your Christmas break, Danny? The, you know, January so far, all 14 days of it. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. But what was your highlight? I know what mine was. Seeing The Hateful Eight? No, it was doing our film quiz oh, on sorry. January the 6th. <laughs> 
I was trying to set that up, guys, but it didn't work. I didn't. I should have winked more. <laughs> yeah, that was also great. That was really good. Yeah, so we did the second edition of our mostly ungoogleable film quiz. Maybe a little more googleable this time, but much better quiz. Much better quiz. It's slightly better attended. Everyone seemed to have a nice time. It was, uh, I mean, it might be arrogant of us to say, but it was pretty much the best fucking thing that's ever happened in the world ever. It might be considered boasting, but I think it was a triumph. It was a, <laughs> <laughs> it was a triumph. It was yeah. a solid win. Well, I, we got nice feedback afterwards. I seem we were quite happy with it. I don't know if the people at the bar were happy with it. Have you spoken to Carl? No, I'll, I'll get on that. I'll talk to Carl. <laughs> we need to speak to Carl, and can't confirm whether that's his real name or not, um, about maybe doing a third one, but we'd certainly like to, and we hope that as many of you, our dear listeners, as possible can join us for that. So that'd Absolutely. be great. We've, uh, because it's been a while since we've been on, we've had a week off or so, there's a few people who have said things to us that we want to now report to you. Back before Christmas, Dougal McQueen got in touch with his review of Star Wars The Force Awakens. Yes, which has now taken all the money in the world or something. It hasn't taken quite all the money in the world. They were hoping that it was going to overtake Avatar as the biggest film of all time, but it hasn't opened Avatar size in China. So I think the latest prediction is that it's going to pass the two billion mark, maybe become the second highest grossing film of all time, but might not overtake Avatar. Um, which is funny, really, considering how what an incredibly average film Avatar is and how little impact it's had culturally. Yeah. Star Wars got probably got the biggest cultural footprint of all time. And yeah. Has no <laughs> has absolutely none whatsoever. Occasionally someone will say something about Na'vi, but that, and that's pretty much it. So, anyway, Dougal talking about The Force Awakens. This is what he says. These are my two quarter portions. The young characters wear their hearts on their sleeves, which is quite sweet. It's fluffy and fun in a way that The Last Star Wars and The Last JJ movie weren't. There's some flabby bits in the middle, and it doesn't keep its foot on the gas in the way you want, but there's enough moments of innovation and teary nostalgia, as well as fist-pumping payoffs, that gives itself a lot of room for error. Although there's plenty of nods and winks to the previous films, it's definitely a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it from JJ, rather than a straight rip-off. I suspect Sam will quite like it, and Danny won't, although of course I have never met either of them. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you, do. <laughs> and then he gives two little kisses. Ooh, <laughs> one for me, one for you. Yeah, one Maybe each. Maybe both for you. I guess the fact that he says Merry Christmas at the end kind of gives away that this message is a little old by now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, sound points from do. I disagree a little bit, but... Yeah, he's pretty positive on it. I mean, I broadly agree. I would say that it's close to a straight rip-off The Force Awakens. Yes. More, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting discussion of where homage just simply becomes, you know, repeating something without having to do, you know, think of anything new. My uh, theory is that give it a year and it will drop one and a half stars. Like um, Into Darkness. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that. That might be true. If people, if all true. the reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes had to like re-review it, I think it would drop a significant chunk. I think that's probably true. I think a lot of the positive reaction was down to relief that it wasn't really bad. Yeah, and um, just general satisfaction with how Star Warsy it felt, rather than it being like a great film. Sure. And if you read a lot of reviews, a lot of them are like very open about that. They're yeah. like they're really just like it was great. I had so much fun. It was an adventure. It was like Star Wars, and that's they don't really go. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense that um, 
uh, that people looking back at it later when you didn't, it's no longer that has that fresh feeling of discovery when you when you it could have been any kind of awful film and you realize it's not actually that bad um and uh i think when people yeah check it out more objectively i think there's probably something inherently object um slightly arrogant sounding about being like i'm ahead of the curve yeah everyone's gonna come around to my view but well, but they will but they will but they, but they're quite <laughs> arrogant or was jesus arrogant when he told people uh to he... be nicer <laughs> they killed him and then years later they're like he had a lot of good points that's it not to make a comparison <laughs> I'm like film Jesus, right? Absolutely. If Jesus was a film critic, he'd resemble you in many ways. Yeah, tall, <laughs> white, <laughs> white, just like Jesus. Yeah, like, like Santa. Actually, can you refer to me as film Jesus this year? If you like, well, the whole year. Yeah, you know, 2016 first. Okay, film Jesus. Well, instead of Danny Moran. Yeah, That's the what intro. I've, I've been using Danny Moran up to this point, but can go with Jesus if you prefer. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Okay. I'll just stick with Sam if that's all right. <laughs> I'll just be Sam and Jesus. Another one of our brilliant listeners who got in touch was James Andrews. Always love to hear from James. He's such a huge fan of us. Happy New Year, James. Happy New Year to you, James. He said, Hey, film chums, I went to see Star Wars last night and I'm afraid to say I'm in agreement with you. Pretty disappointing feeling that I've heard every line before. Even the ones that weren't references. What I didn't mind hearing again, however, was the incredible sound design, which in my opinion carries the whole thing. Blasters, lightsabers, TIE fighters, also original and still fresh sounding. When the relentless battles get boring without them. Maybe so. Got me thinking, are there any other films which have such a distinctive sonic landscape? Would love to hear your thoughts. Well, that's an excellent point that technically the film, I feel like... Really well executed. Yeah, just got Ben Burt on sound design, John Williams on the music. Yeah. It's like there's a very famous viral clip of um, someone's taken out the John Williams music at the end of New Hope. So it's the throne room scene without the music. And nothing and it's like terrible. dead. Yeah, nothing is happening. But you get John Williams on the case, he just lifts the whole thing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. In terms of sonic, sonic landscapes... Um, yeah, that's the sort of great discussion-provoking comment that we love, but I don't, I don't think either of us have prepared a response to that one. I saw... I think the film Stoker's got good sound design. Oh right, yeah. That just I, leapt into my mind. Well, that's Stoker. a film that's that's uh, worth mentioning because I think that's a film that's not very much discussed now. Um, who's the director of the movie? It's a Korean Park guy, Chan Wook. Yeah, the director of um, uh, the Chaser, right? No, so that guy, or the director of Old Boy. Director of Old Boy. The his director of Old Boy. Yeah, his first English language, English, yeah. English language movie um, with um, Mia Wasikowska and. Um, those other <laughs> actors. And <laughs> was it Nicole Kidman, Kidman and Matthew Goods? Yeah, it's this weird gothic story. It's a bit like um, Crimson Peak, except more brutal and like ho- more like a horror film. Uh, and yeah, definitely worth checking out. It's got like a good, good cool, creepy atmosphere. Yeah, I would, uh, I'd recommend. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, check it out, James. That's got a great sonic landscape. This is a bit of well-known trivia. I'm not a huge fan of the film Wall-E, but Ben Burt, who did the sound design on Star Wars, also did the sound design on Wall-E, and it's impressive how he manages to create all those emotions in that big egg. That big egg that that robot likes. Big old egg. I'm not a fan of that movie. Do you know what Wall-E is? Do you know what it is, Sam? It's a film about a utopian society destroyed by a selfish robot who's in love with a big egg. (laughs) As far as I can see it, those humans... They have it pretty good. Yeah. That's how I want humanity to end up. I think one of the issues with Wally is definitely that at the end of the movie, when they return to planet Earth, you think they'll be dead in a week. (laughs) They are. They've evolved to not be able to live on Earth. 
There's one like the whole movie, the whole movie sets up that they are incapable of looking after themselves, and yeah, and they're put on a world which is uninhabitable except for some dirt somewhere. One cockroach, <laughs> yeah, like a locust or something. What's his little Jiminy Cricket like? Is it a cockroach? It might be a cricket. I don't cricket? know. Giant cricket. Giant, giant cricket. Giant futuristic space cricket. And one plant. Yeah, that's all they've got to live on. Yeah, they're going to get through that plant pretty quickly. I reckon it would come back and be like a sort of cannibal eating each other sort of situation. Cannibal Holocaust. Wally 2 Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Pixar sequel I want to see. That would be a good place I for I want to see Finding Dory. I want to see Wally 2 Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. Wally 2 Survive or Alive or whatever but it is. the sound design is excellent in that movie. Yeah, so I feel like there are much better examples we're missing. Yeah. Do you know what we're missing, listeners? Right in and let us know. Right in and let us know your favorite Sonic landscape. We really want to push this podcast into a real user-generated content situation where I have to do less and less preparation. Exactly, exactly. Just because, send us stuff. Well, as evidence here, neither of us really prepared an answer to that question. But and if you'd prepared it, imagine how good the podcast would be right now. It would have been a prepared podcast and therefore good audio, but just not prepared by us. True, true. So one final post on the Facebook page from Michael Patrick... He was talking about our Christmas episode in which Katie quizzed us yeah. and neither of us recognised the references to Mean Girls. And that's one of the more quotable films made in the last 15 years. So it doesn't yeah. reflect well on us as film no, no, chaps. No, doesn't have done it at all. He says, poor Mean Girls knowledge, guys. Poor. Fair enough. Can't argue with that. He also says, Katie, in Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Steve Martin is trying to get home for Thanksgiving, not Christmas. Disappointing. If that's Ooh. true, then I think that sh- that whole question should be out. And then I- what, what does that leave the scores? I think you still win. Because you won 6-2, right? But okay. the, the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles question, I think you might have got two points on that for getting the movie right and then getting the follow-up question right. So it would have been 4-2. But if she hadn't put that question, there might have been a different question. That I might have got. got. So maybe 4 all, Because I probably would have got the hypothetical other question. <laughs> Yeah. Right. You probably would have got it right. You probably would have answered it so well, you would have got an extra point. So I. So should we just say that I won it? You won. You probably got 12 extra points. I think. <laughs> you destroyed me. Yeah, I think if that question had been, she probably would have had more questions than just one, and I would have got them all right. So let's call it like 12 4. Thank God. Yeah. 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 Well, I can see Well, good beat. try. I mean, good try. I tried, but, you know, I got a. You put in a good performance. But yeah. there's a lot of hypothetical questions that didn't exist, which I absolutely nailed. Yeah. So I really came I'm through. I'm really good at answering real questions. Yeah, it's only uh, real questions that you, could, you did well. Because of the hypothetical situation, you're, you're the fucking master of that domain. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for your uh, message, Michael. Thank You've, you, Michael. You really came through for me, and so you got me a lot of extra points on the quiz. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So thanks a lot. That's not your name, Mike. He follows up his own comment with a comment on his comment. He what? says, But then again, I tried to do a top ten film list and realised I hadn't seen any good films this year. Not any good films. What a shit year for you. So maybe I should be more disappointed in myself, he says. Yes, you should. But Mick, just, you listen to that podcast. Come on, you got you, how many you recommendations, got, you got Dean? Like 20 films. You haven't seen Shaun the Sheep? You haven't seen Shaun the Sheep the movie? Come on. You haven't seen Amy? He was on TV last week. I haven't seen Amy. Get out. <laughs> 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 Shut up, man! I'm scolding Mick. Sorry. Yeah. You haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road? Come on. I've seen Carol. Maybe you just didn't like him. Maybe you didn't like Mad Max. That'd be insane. The fuck? That would be absolutely insane. I'd be mad. That would be just crazy. Can you imagine? It'd be absolutely crazy. <laughs> you you bomb me, Mick. 
You're mental. Anyway, sorry, enough of that. I've had a beer, so that explains why I'm dragging that on. Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tips, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's been to print. So this week saw the Golden Globes. Yeah, it's awards season, so there's absolutely tons of awards and news going on all the time. And Golden Globes are sort of famous for maybe sort of starting a narrative that will continue throughout the awards season. Yeah, no one really cares what the outcome of the Golden Globes is, but it means that when they discuss the more important awards, they can compare them to the outcomes of the Golden Globes to decide whether it's a surprise or not. Anyway, one thing that the Golden Globes confirmed was that The Martian is hilarious. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely hilarious. I laughed a bit when I watched The Martian. There were a few funny moments. But when I realised that it was a comedy, then I realised that it was actually really funny. And, of course, it won. It won Best Comedy. How could it not? Yeah. Shall we remind ourselves of a great clip from The Martian? Yeah. One of the funniest scenes of the year? Yeah, let's hear it. It's so funny. 1,200 kilometres in diameter bearing 24.41 degrees. That's tracking right towards us. Based on current escalation, estimate a force of... 8,600 newtons? Let's do a board force. 7,500. Anything more than that, and the math could tip. Begin abort procedure. Let's make it up. Prep emergency departure. Oh, God, this is radio, but if it was television, you'd see me wiping away the tears of joy from my eyes. I that you're doing it anyway. Of course I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, well, it might be audible, I don't know. I've just, my nose is running. Anyway, I think some... Also with laughter. Well, The Martian won at the Golden Globes because they have this separate comedy and musical category. Which itself is a bit weird. Yeah. That's open, that's clearly open for abuse. It's pretty obvious that any film that is remotely has a bit in it which could be considered to be funny or someone sings a song but they don't think they're going to win best film in the drama category they will just put themselves in for comedy musical yeah and it just seemed like the martian was manipulating that because it's not a comedy at all but i think maybe the sort of narrative the gongler style that might come true is that sylvester stallone won for best supporting actor and he's been nominated today for best supporting actor academy award and this old guy reprising a role. Yeah. But they, but they use that. Goodwill. Sometimes they give a kind of a lifetime achievement award, don't they? Like they did with Martin Scorsese when they gave him Best Director of The Departed. Yeah. When, you know, it's clearly not his best film, but it's his first Oscar. So it was kind of a reflection on his whole body of work Absolutely. rather than just on that movie. But I think he's in, like, there's no frontrunner in Best Supporting Actor. So I think he's got the best story. Yeah, ex- of, exactly. Of exactly. And that matters, right? That's so obviously I, I important. I think you get it. Yeah. I haven't seen Creed yet, but maybe, maybe it's deserved. So that's definitely true. The other winners of the Golden Globe, The Revenant won Best Picture, and it's also got a lot of, gathered a lot of Oscar noms. So The Revenant's got quite a bit of um, momentum behind it. Uh, DiCaprio won the Best Drama Actor. Damon won the Best Comedy Actor for his hilarious performance. Oh, brilliant. As being the only person who lives on Mars. Brie Larson won um, the Best Dramatic Role for Room, which I haven't seen, but which is getting a lot of attention, actually. Yeah. That also got more Oscar nominations than expected. And I'm bleeding into the Oscar stuff, but um, yeah. that, that did pretty well. Jennifer Lawrence got Best Act- Actress for Joy, um, of which more later... <laughs> Um, and Inyaritu, Alejandro Inyaritu, won Best Director for The Revenant. Um, and, yeah. I thought The Baptist was a very strange crop of films, with Bridge of Spies leading the pack, a film which has got 
pretty sort of like good to middling reviews. Yeah, it got like good reviews. I think people were like, this is a good film. It definitely didn't blow everyone away. It'd be quite bizarre if that was the best film of the year. But I think the weirdest thing about it is that um, Ridley Scott has got a best director nomination, but George Miller hasn't. And The Martian has for some reason got this like awards love and it's a big crowd-pleasing commercial hit. It's not an awardsy movie. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the far superior, much more cultural, impactful... Man, better man. reviews yeah. maybe maybe got less money I don't know maybe the Matt Damon dollar is more but if you're going to give a director who made a commercial uh, film a nomination surely it'd be George Miller and not really Scott so I can understand if they snubbed George Miller completely because it's not an awardsy movie but to include Ridley Scott just makes it there's not even like a method in their madness I don't think yeah and uh, Mad Max is a much more of a director's film as well it's a real like auteur's vision yeah I mean it's gonna I think it'll sweep up some technical I think it'll get best editing it uh, must do right yeah I'm sure I'm sure it will it's, yeah it gets some stuff like edited. that um, but The Martian is not a spectacular like director's film you know it's, it's but it, I can understand in a way the um, awards love for it just because it's a pretty unthreatening heartwarming tale of um the oscars likes movies about people beating the odds right like hardy individuals fighting against uh big obstacles and breaking through i think the martian was just better than people expected and came out at a time when there weren't that many good movies out that's true that's true actually yeah it's came, more just came out like, at a good time. It was just perfectly placed in the calendar yeah it's a, it's a good yeah yeah that's absolutely then true. actually like a really good film yeah yeah, it's definitely not a movie that people look back in future years as a classic. I think that that might be a useful rule of thumb for people to decide when they're making these decisions in a way, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like a movie like Inherent Vice, for example, is a film that people will discuss in, like, future years. And Birdman, I don't think they really will, because it's, uh... I, I liked him more... I liked Birdman. I know don't, I liked don't him. mention Birdman to I know me. I liked him more than you. But it's a light movie. It's not a movie that is going to have a great well, impact. It tells you what it's about all the time. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's not like a really subtle film or you know. I don't know what you get out of a second viewing. Yeah, in a way, it's an interesting year for movies because um, there is no real standout single film that everyone is expecting to sweep it, or a small crop of say three movies that everyone is seeing is duking it out. It seems to be quite a well-spread group. There's a bunch of movies that were really well received uh, this year, and none of them seem to be really sweeping it. So it was kind of um, interesting in that way. I think maybe that's where you end up with movies like Bridge of Spies, where... Um, no one hates it. No one hates it, exactly. Yeah, you end up with the movie that's just the most unobjectionable, is the one that seems to be doing uh, really successful. On this point, um, the Oscars maybe got slight more street cred, I don't know what the word would be, by nominating Mad Max for Best Picture and uh, George Miller for Best Director. But uh, as many people already pointed out, it is... Uh, a bunch of old white guys yeah. in the movies. So the, so the Oscars normally today, and the big sort of story that was going around on Twitter and stuff, the thing that everyone was talking about is the fact that it's a really very white year. And uh, it follows on from a very white 2015. I don't remember people discussing this a lot of the time, but um, someone mentioned it in a tweet, and I went back and checked it out, and it's uh, completely true that every actor, actress, both supporting and main, that was nominated last year, all white. And the exact same thing is true this year. And the movies are all about white people. And this is not a year when there weren't movies except for ones about white people. You know, it's like, no. it's not like there's nothing else to choose from. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah. Um, Creed, Dear White People, 
uh, me on the dying girl dope there um, was like all these young black voices coming yeah. through straight out of Compton straight out of Compton yeah that's, um, got, a, that's got one best well it's really funny original because original screenplay exactly it's really funny because straight out of Compton got something for best original screenplay but the uh, writers are white so they managed to give the um, the only nomination for straight out of Compton which is all about black people is for the white people involved yeah. in making it yeah and this also ties into a sort of pretty universal snubbing of Hateful Eight which we'll go on to, but is probably the movie which most addresses what America's like. like racial right racial now. issues, yeah. The one, yeah. Um, and also has an absolute barnstorming performance by Samuel L. Jackson, which is clearly awards-worthy. But yeah. perhaps that, that's also Better than Matt Damon in The Martian. Yeah, it is. Matt, Matt Damon's performance in The Martian is just a friendly dude being nice. That's with one <laughs> bit of where he has to be a bit upset. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it's like it reminds me a bit actually of Colin Firth's performance in The King's Speech where it's like an actor who's placed absolutely firmly in their comfort zone doing a really good job yeah. like Colin Firth is good at a kind of stuttering posh nice man you know yes his wheelhouse yeah he can knock that out of the park and, and you know he did a perfectly great job doing that um, and uh, similarly Matt Damon is a very likeable guy he seems a bit like, um, in his character in The Martian, could just be on a talk show and be exactly like Matt Damon is when he's on a talk show. <laughs> um, so it doesn't seem like an incredible performance, but it's just very likeable. Whereas uh, Samuel Jackson's performance is like, uh, he absolutely owns that film, which is not short on um, people who have big um, screen presence. And uh, more people should be recognising it. It's a bit bizarre that they aren't. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a bit kind of embarrassing, I think. And everyone always talks about how the Academy doesn't represent women enough and how it doesn't represent people of colour enough, and they just do not seem to be sensitive to that at all. Like, No. I guess because um, it, there's there's a lot of people in it, and when you add all their aggregate decisions together, you just iron out any kind of conscious um, anti-bias. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, well, you know, you put them all together and eventually whatever bias they have towards stories about um, troubled white men, it's like, that wins out. You yeah. Know? Um, so, yeah, that's really the um, the big story of the Oscars. But I don't know, what do you think is going to win? Do you have an idea of what, what's going to win? Best oh. pitch, Best picture, I mean. Best picture. Um... No, it's like super hard to call. I say, yeah. I say, like the Revenant would be the front runner had they not won previously. He won year. last time. Yeah. So maybe I should just give a very quick rundown of best pictures of the Oscars. So the Big Short, which is a movie about the financial crisis, which hasn't yet come out in the UK, coming out very soon. But just Spies, Spielberg movie, Brooklyn, Man Max Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, Room, um, which is a sort of indie picture that could this year, I guess, that yeah. suddenly like, developed this huge profile. I think it's also about to come out here. It hasn't quite come out yet. And Spotlight, um, which is Todd McCarthy's film about a bunch of journalists investigating abuse in the Catholic Church, which is also not yet out here, but um, has had really, really good reviews. So, yeah, if you think The Revenant, which is the big winner in terms of nominations, and yet they just gave Inari to the best picture last year, so it seems like he probably won't win it again... And uh, then the other top nominated film is Mad Max, and that just doesn't seem like a best picture kind of movie at all. But it'd be, I mean, in a way, it'd be great like if that won. That'd be brilliant. What I would say for The Revenant is like, uh, this is a very obvious point, but with the nominations, often like they're the most obvious examples of whatever that category is. So Aaron Sorkin, like one for the Social Network, because there's a lot of people talking in that movie. Someone definitely wrote that. Yeah. 
And I feel like The Revenant is like, someone, this is a movie because there's... Someone worked legs. hard on this. Somebody, there it's cold and there was a bear. Yeah. And it's like, that is definitely a made film. Whereas something maybe a bit more subtle, like Brooklyn, which apparently is a sort of quite meditative piece of, you know... You know, the, the, the working out isn't available on screen. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. You, you, go, you immediately see where all the money and time went. So, like, subtlety is not, like, valued in the nomination. So I think a big movie like The Revenant, if Mad Max won it, I'd be delighted. Yeah, but, but, but if it's not The Revenant, what do you think is the big one to beat? Because oh, it's really hard to say. Especially because I guess a couple of these movies haven't come out here, so we can't really judge them. Like, haven't seen Spotlight, so I don't know if that's the movie. But no one's really talking about it that much. Maybe Room, because I hear it's emotionally devastating. It's got an impact. That's true, yeah. Room. That's I'm going to call it now. $20 on Room. That's uh, based on a novel, which is a kind of adaptation of, or um, Danny's holding it in his hands now. <laughs> uh, and it's based on the kind of idea or the concept of the Joseph Fritzl thing of a man who um, kidnaps a woman and keeps her in his basement for years and years, and she has a child. And the... Um, story is kind of about their lives in the room and the kid is like six years old by this point he's never been outside the room so that's his entire universe and apparently it's uh, a more kind of heartwarming piece than you'd expect given that the premise sounds so incredibly dark or it's not quite as gloomy as um as that makes it seem yeah but yeah i don't know maybe maybe that will turn out to be the surprise frontrunner but i kind of feel like if if the revenant doesn't win then whatever does win will be a surprise um because it's uh there is no other obvious, really obvious yeah. candidate. What so, do you think? What do you think, listeners? Let's have a little um, maybe we should film do, chat bet going maybe we should on. Do yeah, like um, what do they call that? Final fantasy, final fantasy. Yeah, fantasy Fan- football, fantasy football, fantasy Oscars, fantasy Oscars. Write over your noms, your nom picks, and then yeah, maybe you we should win do like a prize. You know, picture, director, actor, actress, or something. Yeah, and then yeah. We'll um, we'll see who people pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'll get a prize. You'll get a photo of us that was taken a year ago. Yep. Um, and a and lock a, of our hair. And a lock of our hair that was cut off recently. <laughs> <laughs> no, like... I cut mine off a while ago. <laughs> Got a whole jar full of my You hair. kept all those locks in case you needed to send them to someone. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack. And telephone friends so you know where she's at. So this week has been marked by some tragic news. There's been a series of um, deaths of actors. Um, First and foremost amongst them would be David Bowie or Bowie. I'm still not sure. I think it's uh, even posthumously like like the Bowie knife. Okay, David Bowie. David Bowie. Um, I think he said himself. Like even I don't know how it's pronounced anymore. Oh really? Even I don't know how to pronounce my name. <laughs> I'm such a sort of figment of seven brilliant characters. <laughs> yeah. So he died a couple of days ago. He died Monday, man. He died Monday and uh, caused, basically sent everyone in the world into a massive um, spiral of mourning and grief. I think it's, um, it's weird living in this time where so much of the big giants like pop culture in like have come from the sort of late 60s. And so we're like living in a time where they're dying, they're getting old. So it's yeah. weird, like, you know, in 10 years, we might be in a situation where like Spielberg's gone, Scorsese's gone, the Beatles will be gone. Yeah, it's I know. weird. It's like, I know what you mean. It's very, um, yeah, but, it'll be very like the end of an epoch kind of thing, because the same people don't exist quite the same the next couple of decades. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I think this is definitely my most significant 
celebrity death. I, uh, I shed some, some... Did you shed some genuine tears? I genuinely did. What, a, a tear or two came out. A tear or two. And I spent the whole day listening to David Bowie albums. Yeah. And a sort of like, was, self-composed... I'm not a huge Bowie guy. Yet. Like, yet. Yes. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm absolutely nothing against him, but I just haven't really listened to loads of his... Oh, so bloody lucky. ...his music and stuff. So much to discover. I was uh, more affected by the death of Terry Pratchett than I was the death of David Bowie. But, oh, yeah, that was a big one. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was... I mean, I knew that he was well-loved and everything like that, but I was slightly taken aback, actually, by just how massive the outpouring was. And where I sit at work, I can see a television on which is constantly playing the BBC News 24. And it was just wall-to-wall Bowie, just like, the entire... I mean, if you didn't like David Bowie, that would have been a nightmare day for you because you just could not escape him the entire day. It's, it's tragic that he's gone, but in a typical awesome... Uh, Bowie movie like releases this album all about death and then just dies yeah he wrote his own epitaph it's just brilliant it's an amazing that's an amazing artistic stroke to go out on the album's great it's not even like people would like even before he died they were saying this has been his best in like decades and it's and that's absolutely brilliant and like I listened to it before, like, I was listening to all weekend, and he died, and I was like, God, these lyrics have taken on different meanings. And, yeah, like, yeah. Listen to it again. That was kind of an amazing moment. Uh, the fact that his death, he almost turned into an artistic statement somehow, is kind of incredible. Awesome, awesome. And led to all these people immediately rushing back to the album and being like, what the, what? You're in a hospital bed? You've got bandages on your eyes? <laughs> yeah, it's all so obvious in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this is a film podcast, yeah, right? So, so was... what, uh, do you have any special Bowie film moments that, you know... Well, I always have a soft spot in my heart for Labyrinth because I watched it as a kid and I loved it. And I think Labyrinth, in a way, you know, when people were talking about remember David Bowie, I doubt they'll think of like Jagger of the Goblin King. Dance, magic dance. But I think, yeah. much like uh, his novelty song, The Laughing Gnome, which is, is a testament to how sort of cool he is, it was sort of like, hey, I'll play a goblin and sort of a puppet movie, and I'll release this avant garde album, then I'll be in a David Lynch film. Yeah. He's so uninhibited by anything, you know, just felt he just did whatever he wanted and he was always like two steps ahead of everybody. He maybe was the first person to sort of making being weird cool. Yeah. He was like a real sort of poster boy for the outsider, which made him so inclusive. And the fact that he Well, he was being weird was inclusive as well. It was yeah. like being weird in a way that made you want to join in. Exactly. And it's yeah. like, yeah, you're not alone. Like the last track, like the last lyric on uh, Ziggy Stardust, it's like a big sort of anthem about, you know, it's fine. Whatever you want to do, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, Sam. It's, it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Um, so that was that was a big one. I don't. I'm not that familiar with even his film output. The Prestige, pretty incredible in that. <laughs> as Nikola Tesla, his cameo in Band Slam. Have you seen that? No. What the hell's Band, in Band Slam? Slam. What's like, Band Slam? You haven't seen Band Slam? I haven't I'm seen Band shit. Slam. It's like some Band sort of shitty Slam. like wannabe High School Musical style uh, TV Disney movie. Yeah. about uh, like a sort of academy where musicians go and they have a band as a concert at the end and at the last shot of the movie is like they perform this triumphant gig and then someone's watching it on YouTube and it's like this is very good cut <laughs> it's David fucking Bowie that's pretty cool and well, yeah. he's got a, he had a young daughter maybe she was a huge fan of the Vanessa yeah. Hudgens who was in that movie it's really it's pretty funny though that's cool yeah he's yeah. a Zoolander that's right he's in Zoolander. Zoolander yeah I've seen him in that yeah, and, just uh, all around cool dude. Just an awesome guy. And then just today, another person who seemed to be absolutely universally loved, like no one has a bad word to say about him, Alan Rickman dies the same exact age, 69. The, the also dies of cancer. 
and uh, yes, yeah, unbelievable. Um, there's there's something that's quite nice in a way about all these tributes are somewhat to people who die when they have cultural impact, and they're all very genuine. You know, like those people, Absolutely. they do not seem uh, neither Rickman or David Bowie are people who other people hated. You know, they just seem to not be genuinely all. very very loved figures, and all of the stuff that um, people say about them on social media and everything like that regardless of what a few cynics are sort of moaning about like coming along oh, fuck is, is genuine you know people like yeah, yeah. people really do it, you know it hits you hard um, and Alan Rickman is uh, yeah it's absolutely fantastic and also someone who bridges the like great art you know, side of acting, the great theatrical acting, and just like the sense of fun and. Uh... Well, that's what's so great about him. Why maybe um, he was always so sought after for villains because he always brings a sort of right sense of humour to it. Yeah, so funny is the um, sheriff of Nottingham. Would he want a BAFTA for it? Have you seen the, his acceptance speech? No, I haven't. No. Let's listen to it right now. Oh, well, thank you. This uh, this will be a healthy reminder to me that subtlety isn't everything. <laughs> But also of how much I owe to Kevin Reynolds, the director. He was working in a kind of maelstrom, and he's my hero. So thank you very much. To him. That's great. Um, and, and I, you know, I think it kind of sums him up. Sort of doesn't take himself super seriously. Absolutely. And his, uh, I think that the success of Die Hard owes a lot to him and perhaps more to him than it does to Bruce Willis in a way because he's playing someone who on the page is really just the sort of average European evil villain uh, but he makes it iconic yeah somehow. absolutely it's true he brings so much to it um, uh, something came up on my Facebook earlier that was quite funny uh, Kevin Smith talking about the death of Alan Rickman for those who haven't seen the movie Dogma Alan he's, Rickman, he's which the is best thing in it. Kevin Smith's movie. Alan Rickman plays an angel who uh, turns up and um, he's in like only a couple of scenes, I think. But um, there's a sort of joke where he hasn't got any balls. Like, who yeah. is he speaking to? I can't even remember. He's speaking to the disciple of uh, the descendant of Christ. The descendant of Christ, right? And then like she's worried that he's going to like assault her or something yeah. like that. But he's like, I don't have a dick, and he sort of pulls yeah. down his trousers and demonstrates <laughs> how fat. So Kevin Smith posted this thing on Instagram to pay tribute to him. He said, "One of my favorite people who ever lived has died. The legendary Alan Rickman played Metatron, the voice of God, in my fourth film Dogma." Alan was the first non-friend who signed up to the flick, but he became a great friend in record time. In this pick, he holds the Ken doll his dogma character's lack of genitalia was modelled after. I'll never forget his incredible dulcet tones guffawing at the rubber crotch makeup he was wearing. One of the greatest actors who ever lived, tickled by a cinematic lack of a dick. I loved Hans Gruber the minute I saw Die Hard, but I fell in love with the soft-spoken, gentle soul who brought Gruber to life. Thank you for lending a hack like me your artistry and your credibility, Alan. You were never Snape to me as much as you were the adult Harry Potter himself, a bona fide wizard who could conjure absolute magic using merely words. He was a huge cauldron of wind, this man. I'll miss him forever. Rest in peace, voice of God. Back to heaven where you came from. Oh, it's quite sweet. It's brilliant. like a slightly <laughs> like silly uh, chibi, but it's yeah. really sweet um, from Kevin Smith. And... Uh, yeah, and, um, he's the best thing in losing. He's the best thing in Love Actually, along with Emma Thompson's like yeah. his great friend. And they this weekend I'll be watching together. Galaxy Quest. So if anyone wants to join me, in Galaxy, Galaxy Quest, Quest is also me. brilliant for Alan Rickman. Yeah, I'm going to be watching some serious Galaxy Quest. That's a good movie. 
If you haven't seen it, guys, it's about a it's Star. A best, yeah, it's like a Star Trek s show. Yeah, um, and it's about the actors who play the people who are in a Star Trek like show, and they're approached by aliens who have watched their show in space and believe it to be real, and they think that all the actors who play the Star Trek people are genuine space heroes, and they sort of zap them into space and make them fight aliens. And it's hilarious. It's genuinely the best Star Trek movie, I think. <laughs> it's, like, better than Star Trek. Yeah. And uh, Alan Rickman plays, like, a sort of um, parody version of himself, in a way, as a kind of thespian actor with a Shakespearean background who, like, hates having to play this stupid science fiction <laughs> character. Um, it's, yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's really good. Awesome. The final person to uh, pay respects to is David Margulies, who is probably best known as playing the cranky mayor from Ghostbusters 1 and 2, but apparently also had a very illustrious career on Broadway. And yeah. was later known as uh, Donnie Soprano's lawyer in The Sopranos. And uh, He's one of the highlights of the Ghostbusters movies. Yeah. He fits perfectly into the world as the uh, cranky old New York mayor. Yeah, he was. He's just great. I don't know. It really makes the movie like he's sort of like a proper character actor in the middle of this ridiculous film about ghosts. Exactly, and like selling every absurd line as though it's real drama. I think maybe we should just hear a quick clip of David Margulies for anyone who's not seen Ghostbusters Two. What am I supposed to do? Go on television and tell ten million people they have to be nice to each other? Being miserable and treating other people like dirt is every New Yorker's God-given right. Your two minutes are up. Good night, gentlemen. So I'll be watching Ghostbusters 2 this weekend, so <laughs> join me for my Galaxy Quest Ghostbusters 2 marathon. Actually, that sounds... Maybe I will that do That sounds it. fucking awesome. I said, I, I said this as a joke, but the more I think about it, the more I'm convincing myself I should definitely do that. I'm always up for Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2 is the fucking best movie about ghosts I've ever seen in my life. Best movie about ghost. <laughs> best movie about busting. That's fucking awesome. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, yeah, a bit, of a bit of a gloomy start to the year, but, you know, rest in peace. All you men. legends. All you legends. Legendary men. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Joy! Joy! Which is what I had Joy in my to the world when I look at you. Ah, oh, that's... That's but really it's also the title of a nice film. thing to say. Yeah, so I saw this movie this weekend. Joy, it's the latest film from David O. Russell. His thing now, ever since he made The Fighter, is just to basically make films with the same group of people over and over. And, uh, you know, it's almost as though someone has discovered a formula for winning awards. And it's just like, you get this group of people in a room and you make a kind of flashy looking movie about them all trying to solve problems. And, you know, there you Man, go. Give me the award. Get some, like, family drama in there and, you know make it fun and put some cool music from the 70s and you know, you're set so this is his latest one 
it's not got that great reviews. Um, and I haven't seen those of David O'Russell, David O'Russell movies, but it's certainly the weakest of um, his films since Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, and like Silver Linings Playbook, we've got Robert De Niro, Bradley Cooper, and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, it's mainly Jennifer Lawrence's movie. It's very loosely adapted from the life of a real woman called Joe Mangano, or Mangiano, who was the inventor of the Miracle Mop, the um, selling point... Oh, of- the Miracle Mop! The Miracle Mop! You love that mop, right? It's your favourite kind of mop. It's your favourite mop device. It's a fucking miracle, that mop. It is. It's great. And they describe it in quite, in quite you know, detail, um, quite great length of this film. Basically, the, the advantage of the miracle mop is that you can twist the handle of the mop in order to squeeze the mop out without having to hold what? it with your hands. It's a very strange film in some ways. It's a movie in that you're both watching and thinking, this is weird, and you're thinking, I've seen this film a million times. The structure of it is uh, exceedingly familiar. And it's almost like... I felt almost like it was a movie for children. It feels like a, a movie that a, um, a dad would make for his daughter to inspire her. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of... I can imagine it being a good film to watch if you're like an 11-year-old girl. Female and you want to see... Yeah. It's it's like the most basic idea of what female empowerment means, which is like a woman like overcoming obstacles when people don't believe in her. Sure. So if you were um, a 12-year-old girl and you wanted a story about a woman who, you know, deals with problems and like conquers them because she's awesome, then this is a good movie to see. But narratively, it's not particularly satisfying. So the setup is that Joy lives in a, uh, in a house. She's kind of like this poor working woman. Uh, as a child, she was encouraged to dream big by her grandmother who like, believed in her and she was really creative. But now that she's a bit older, life has kind of ground her down a bit. She's divorced and her ex-husband lives in the basement. Her mother lives in the house and she's like a like, borderline, like has mental problems as someone who only okay. watches soap operas and doesn't do anything else. Um, and the beginning, her father, who's divorced from her mother, arrives because his girlfriend has kicked her out and her father doesn't get on with um, her ex. So there's all these like tensions in the house and right, like... Okay basically everyone in her life is kind of a pain in the ass but you know she is awesome and the whole mode of the film is that she meets people who don't really believe in her and then she like overcomes problems it's not surprising it's one of the least surprising films like i've ever seen Uh, and the interest in the movie is mainly generated by david russell's incredibly zippy camera techniques and constantly a fun pop song is kicking in and there's the whole beginning of the movie where it's setting up her childhood and taking you through to when she's older and dealing with those issues in the house like it's kind of like a long montage sequence it's like a fun it's like goodfellas crossed with it's a wonderful life i think that's pretty much like what he's going for the kind of moral of the film or like the goal that she's working for is basically to become a rich businesswoman and I find that to be a bit of a shallow goal in a way, since right. the film is kind of just about making loads of money. What would make me happy? Loads of money. money. <laughs> Maybe if I was really, really rich. And the method by which she makes money is not particularly inspiring because it's about getting on the home shopping channel and selling a mop. Right. And Bradley Cooper plays the, um, the head of QVC. Uh, the guy who runs the QVC shopping channel. And there's all this stuff where he's talking about how great shopping channels are. And then they go to where they make the shopping channel TV and he shows off his great studio. And he's kind of presented as an awesome, uh, genius, intense businessman. And uh, But everyone knows shopping channels are lame, right? It's just bullshit. They're, but they're like, they're not, it's not just like bullshit advertising, but they're also not cool. 
Yeah. And so there's a, I think it's a bit of an odd thing in the film in a way that you're really like, you're supposed to be super invested and excited by her getting on to go on the shopping channel to sell her mop and stuff. It's a very uh, capitalist and individualistic and self-centered view of achieving your dreams. It's basically a woman whose life consists entirely of obstacles and in which even the people who are doing her favors are problems. So her dad's um, new girlfriend is like this millionaire widow who lends her tons of money to start her mop business, which is an incredible stroke of good fortune. But the way the movie presents it is this woman's a pain. She doesn't believe in her. She thinks she's going to fail. And she's just another thing that Jennifer Lawrence has to overcome to like prove that she's great. Rather than being... The- Rather than being... The, the, without her, she would never have gone anywhere <laughs> because she gives her hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Right, okay. And then also the way that the plot wraps up at the end is so perfunctory that it's like the the final climax of the film doesn't land at all so you know in these kinds of movies there's a very tried and tested structure where basically they you have a character who has to overcome a bunch of things and succeeds at the end and they will do, do kind of well and then there'll be a setback and then they'll get a bit further and there'll be another setback and then there'll be like the biggest possible setback and then they'll be right at rock bottom and you'll think they can't go any this is it for them they're dead and then after that there aren't any more setbacks and then it's just the story of how they you know made good yeah like sporting movies are always like that like a movie like trading places you know and this is exactly the same thing except like after she hits rock bottom and you can really tell what the moment is in the movie you're like there you go you know that's it now from everything now from here on in everything will be absolutely fine and then she just resolves her problems so rapidly it's as if she waved a magic wand there's like a bit where she has a business meeting and it's like the hard-ass businessman who you think is going to screw her over and she just deals with him in like one second uh, and it's not satisfying and then there's a kind of end montage about how great the person you just saw was and how rich she becomes and stuff like that so i found it a little bit empty how's the um performances um it's jennifer lawrence is good in it i think and but it's so obviously a film written to play to her strengths that it doesn't seem that wowing yeah i think what people treasure about jennifer lawrence is the fact that she is this she seems like a really fun beautiful young woman and she's got these like big cheeks that make her seem like uh somehow more accessible yeah i would just i don't know she looks she she just looks like your sort of cool friend at school but because she's a great actress she has this real presence and has this real steel quality to her and that's what makes her so effective in the hunger games because she always looks like the person who you would least expect to be the leader of this resistance you know and this badass warrior but she always sells it really successfully. And this movie, like the Hunger Games movies are much better tales of a woman overcoming things against the odds than this film is. But it trades on the same thing of Jennifer Lawrence where she just seems like an average, she looks like a sort of average person and she, you know, she looks kind of vulnerable, but she's got this real core of steel that allows her to triumph at the end. So because the movie seems so automatic, like that quality doesn't seem like that amazing because that's what you kind of expect from Jennifer Lawrence. Robert De Niro, I listened to Kermit's review and he was really praising Robert De Niro, but I just thought he was totally, absolutely phoning it in. Like, he's just the kind of, yeah. Done that. Yeah. Kind of sort of. Yeah, just, yeah. uh, Yeah. 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 You know, that's, that, that is it. That's all he, he's a completely one note performance. And that that is all he does the whole film. He's just kind of charming because he's Robert De Niro and you're like, you're kind of fun, but he's not at all amazing. And it's much like that. Sure. It feels a little bit like a first draft of a movie where he get, got the kind of idea down and then he was like, fuck it, I'll just film it. Get, get it out in time for the Oscars. It, it wasn't a very satisfying film. It was like a light meal of a movie where you came and you were like, nah. Still hungry. Yeah. 
still bit hungry. <laughs> Need some more dramatic stuff to chew on. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join you, share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak? Or do they interrupt each other? And others on the gathering. So let the chat Hateful Eight, which is the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. If you count Kill Bill's one film, and if you don't count Death Proof or something like that, no, you have to count, sort of count them in a particular way. Or you don't count four rooms? Yeah, or? don't count four rooms. Okay, That's so if good. Kill Bill's a single film, then this is his eighth film. Eighth film, and he, it says so in the credits, the eighth film of It's quite funny that it says, that, not just in the marketing, but actually in the credits for the film itself. So the plot is that in 1875 in a... Windswept Wyoming, Kurt Russell was transporting Daisy Donahue, played by uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, to be hung. He is the hangman because uh, he's a bounty hunter that insists on it, rather if it says dead or alive, he'll bring them in alive because he's got some sort of very. He's got this code. code. He doesn't like to code. shoot people. It's too easy. He wants to have them hanged. And on the way uh, to Red Rock, the place where he's going to be hanged, they encounter another bounty hunter, played by Samuel Jackson, uh, Major Marcus Warren. And also, uh, Walton Goggins playing Chris Mannix, who's the sheriff of Red Rock. And they hole up, because the blizzard is so bad, in a sort of haberdashery, Minnie's haberdashery. And there, there are even more suspicious-looking people. <laughs> even more big, hairy guys yeah. with weird, scary backstories. Played by Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, Damien Bashir, and Bruce Dern. And the film is basically a very actually chamber-piece drama. Yeah which uh, sort of uses the genre of a Western to explore some very interesting things. And you're never quite sure what people's motivations are or what the relationship to other people's are. Yeah. And here is a clip of Tim Roth playing the spectacularly named Oswaldo Oswaldo Mowbray explaining what justice is. Frontier justice. Frontier justice is to Kurt Russell and Daisy Donahue. If you're found guilty... The people of Red Rock will hang you in the town square, and as the hangman, I will perform the execution. And if all those things end up taking place, that's what civilized society calls justice. However, if the relatives and the loved ones of the person you murdered were outside that door right now, and after busting down that door, they drug you out into the snow and hung you up by the neck, that would be frontier justice. So we both saw this in how Tarantino intended to be in a 70mm presentation with an interval, intermission, sorry, in the middle. Mm. And uh, it's pretty much, I feel like watching it was what people who like sports must feel like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when they go to a game. You, really, you sit down, you sit and you're, down. you're ready, you're like, bring it! I'm, I'm pumped, and yeah. I thought it was brilliant, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it as well, I thought it was excellent. But we, yeah, we're both um, paid-up Tarantino fans, and he's, I think he's been on a bit of a run, like his last few movies have been brilliant. Yes, I and think this, this is, no um, is better than Django Unchained, and I think it's, you could, it's definitely in the top half of his filmography, I would say. Hmm. It's really refreshing to see him do new stuff, and I think... It's easy to write off Tarantino as always sort of resting on his laurels slightly because he's 
there's a few aesthetic things he returns to again and again. But that's true of every filmmaker. So, but for some reason, with Tarantino, it sticks a bit more from his critics. But the film operates as like a brilliant story, which I don't want to talk about too much because half the joy is like it's like a night at the theater mm. in the best possible sense. But the story is the first and foremost is an entertaining romp. But there's also it's a very thematically rich film, and especially Tarantino's been in the news about supporting the Black Lives Matters campaign and the sort of points he makes about American history are very smart and the way the characters' motivations are played out are also very insightful, I think. And it's interesting because on an absolute service level, there's a couple of moments maybe when characters say things that have obviously modern re- resonances. Um, and they tend to... It centres around Samuel L. Jackson's character who's sort of the main character... Uh, and is almost played up to be the one who the audience invests the most sympathies in, uh, which is then constantly challenged because he is just as hateful in many ways as all the other hateful eight people. It's definitely a film that delivers on its title. It does, absolutely. But there's a, there's a bit where he says something like, the only time a black folk ever feels safe is if white folk are disarmed, or something like that. Something that like, clearly has modern resonances. But the way that the action plays out and the way that the characters behave and their beliefs equally have um, clear parallels with the particularly the action in the last year and if you are attuned to that sort of thing if you want to look to it it's very very clearly there yeah I I wish I'd seen The Revenant uh, before this because these are both sort of snowbound epics and I think it's like different takes on what's cinematic and like I guess when people think of cinematic films they think of big landscapes which this movie has but I think is despite you can make accusations of being stagey, there's something amazingly cinematic about watching a brilliant actor deliver amazing dialogue and everything's been set up so brilliantly that it's paying off in this kind of slow crescendo. Mm. And they're like all these brilliant charismatic actors and they all get lots to do. And it's just cool seeing these actors interact. And yeah. like the fact that it takes its time is just part of the fun. Like, and it sets the pace really well. It's very slow, but there's always stuff happening. People have compared it to the theatre, but um, I felt that it was quite operatic. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it always sounds a bit wanky if you compare something to opera because you're trying to get like really high arty about it. But it is very, it is very much like opera in the way that it has a series of individual sequences that each have their own momentums to them. And it's split into chapters, which is something that Tarantino really likes to do with his movies. But each chapter in this film has a clear kind of beginning, middle, and an end, and it builds to something, and then there's a climax, and then it falls away, which is something that happens in scenes all the time in movies. But in this, it's done in this very, very deliberate um, way. Uh, It reminds me a bit of something like Magnolia, something like that, where there's this ebb and flow to it, and you can really feel the movie like you know winding down and like building up and cresting and um and things and and that kind of thing uh and the way that it's partitioned gives it this operatic sense because in each section you have this number of players and you set up and you know that these people are going to interact and then like you see those people interact and there's some kind of climax to that and then it falls away and um and it ramps up those different, you know, ebbing and flowing things ramp up gradually as the film goes on until it goes totally um, hysterical and ballistic at the end. Yeah, it's also um, maybe a contender for, like, his best-looking movie. Mm. Yeah, the cinematography by Robert Richardson is um, absolutely yeah, incredible. It's an absolutely stunning film. And uh, it's his first original score by Naomi Morricone. It's brilliantly foreboding. The score, score was so good. It was, like, it was like a horror movie. Yeah. It's got this amazing opening shot of the crucifix and this, like... St- crucifix covered in snow and like this terrifying score from Morricone. But it's like um, maybe it's a bad reader like 
always compare him to like his critics but like there's real moments of like just brilliantly directors of lyrical beauty and like it wouldn't be out of place in like uh terence malick movie or whatever right but um yeah I, I feel like the mixture of going back to this one location the sort of snowy landscape and the musical score this original score has like kind of pushed him in new directions like formally especially at the framing because mm. like, he's had to consider it all like it's so brilliantly done and there's no he's a bit more reined in the movie is at a more languid pace than most films in the, in the way that the scenes play out the scenes a lot of the scenes especially in the first half are like 15% longer than a scene would be in any other movie yeah and I think whether you see that as being flabby and self-indulgent or if you just simply see that as that's the pace of this film and that's the world it's in and you know you know go along with it that's I mean it's kind of down to personal taste in a way uh, I'm perfectly happy to watch these characters sit around in a carriage and talk about Civil War history and everything like that. Like, I was totally fine with it, you know? I'm, I'm not desperate for them to get to the next stage of the plot. It's totally fine with me because it's good. Well, like... But, but big, if someone is like, this is too long, then I can get is it. that, like, that everyone's got all this baggage which you never see. They just talk about it. Yeah. And so I thought that, you know, it's very thematically on point. It's like all this shit's happened, which you haven't seen, but you're just, you're watching the final act in a sort of movie, which is the roots go back years. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. They all seem to know each other. There's all this. uh, Yeah. 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 I want to very quickly recap um, and sort of regurgitate something clever that I read on the internet. (laughs) Presented as I thought it myself. Um, But uh, Devin Faraci, who's a film critic who writes for Birth, Birth Movie's Death, uh, he wrote a good piece about this film, which don't you shouldn't read unless you've seen the movie, but once you've read it, you should definitely read it. Um, and he's talking about that Tarantino's developing treatment of race. And Tarantino and race is really a fascinating topic because um, at the start of his career, there is something black exploitation-y about Tarantino's use of black characters. And his use of the N-word in Pulp Fiction is purely fun. It's just, like, fun to him, and he likes hearing the characters say it. Yeah. Uh, and then as his career develops, it changes form, and it becomes a lot more pointed and a lot more meaningful. And Devin French is making the um, case that in this movie, that word, which is used all the time as well, um, has its most impact of any of his movies uh, yet, is the most meaningful, and how it's a film which, unlike Django Unchained, which is kind of a black revenge fantasy, you might say, or it's a film in which um, the slaves defeat the slavers. Sure. Um, it, and, that, and that's a film in which white people watching today can feel fine about it because that's the story that you want to play out. Uh, and uh, you can watch it and think, oh, America's nothing like that now, and not worry about it. Whereas The Hateful Eight is much more of a film about America, how it is now, and the lies that we tell ourselves about race is something which is built into the plot of this movie, and that makes the racism of the characters and the way that that prejudice affects each other and the way that the violence is generated um, from those sort of base, like, hatreds of people towards each other um, is uh, true now. So it's a much more uncomfortable watch. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very clever, it's a very, very clever film. And it obviously benefited from its development over the course of the year since its first draft. And, yeah. Yeah, I have nothing to add without just gushing. <laughs> like Gwyneth Paltrow building herself yeah. a special needs Oscar. Gushing like the severed head of a cowboy. When Ralph heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mistake for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy 
eyes Eros, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Listeners, thanks for joining us for our first episode back of 2016. It's lovely to have you back. It's, it's lovely, lovely to be, be back. back. It's lovely to see you. And yeah. As many of you know, we record every series of Film Chat a year in advance. So yeah. we were recorded up to December 2016. So and we've also seen every film that comes out in 2016. We're that well connected. Yeah. We're time travellers. Even the ones in post. Even the ones in pre. We've seen them. We've seen all of them. <laughs> so we'd like to leave you a little scissor reel of what to look forward to from Film Chat in 2016. Yeah. Till next time. So long. Bye. Bye. Obviously, everyone's talking about Chris Rock doing the whole Oscar ceremony in whiteface. The man is a genius. Why are the So Solo crew doing the score to Rogue One? And where have the So Solo crew been? Obviously, everyone's talking about George W. Bush announcing that he's making a film about the life of Oliver Stone called Stone. Delayed revenge by Bush there. He obviously was unhappy about Stone's biopic W, starring Josh Brolin as George. But who will play Oliver in Bush's biopic Stone? I can't believe Ansel Elgort fucked Liza Minnelli. To death. Danny and I just got back from Brett Ratner's Summer Ball. It was disappointing. Paul Thomas Anderson's new film is officially called Elbow Squad. Why was Ricky Gervais there? What was he doing there? Yeah, I don't know. Why was Ricky Gervais there? Who invited him? I, I really didn't think Ricky Gervais was going to be there. Who invited him to my birthday? I can't believe he's guilty. I, I, <laughs> it's astonishing news. They found the trousers in the swimming pool, and apparently they belong to his wife. But they seem so big. I, <laughs> I, I, it's, a bizarre, it's absolutely a bizarre tale. I don't know, is he going to make a sequel to Kindergarten Cop 2? Well, not at this rate. Not at this rate. That really puts a whole new meaning on Michael Bay's name. Yeah. What an ironic way to quit the industry. Von Trier. I thought Gods of Egypt was going to be a load of shouting nonsense salad in cartoonish CGI, but it was actually the most powerful experience of my life. Watching it was like how I imagined the perfect water birth to be. Draining, spiritual, transformative. At the end, I was, had to physically restrain myself from going to the nearest town hall and legally changing my name to Anubis. That's how, <laughs> that's how fucking good it was. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack. 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. 